And now we are welcome to another episode of the Nelibera Podcast. I'm Ronaldo McKenzie. I have with me an amazing gentleman who's been on the show before, Mr. John Anthony Castro. Welcome back to the show. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. By the way, when he came on earlier, you were looking so fresh, so dapper. That's 21st century style for you, man. <laughs> so, uh, I, by the way, um, how are you doing? How is everything? Oh, good, good. Um, I mean, do you want me to give you an update on on kind of uh, what's what's happened? Yeah, but I mean, some pleasantries. I know sometimes you were um, you said that there was some like, you had some sad news in the family, and I know you guys oh, were so wanted to find how is everything. How is the family doing? Oh, family, yeah, yeah, Every, everything's good with the family. Uh, yeah, it was a, the daughter of uh, my cousin, but, uh, you know, unexpectedly. Well, I mean, kind of expectedly because she had a, a you know, a special uh, neurological condition. But, uh, but yeah, she she finally succumbed to to that. So uh, it's called Miller Riker syndrome. But, uh, but yeah, we're 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 good now. I'm just saying, you know, I'm going to um, before I get to the podcast, I want to tell you. And there's violence everywhere. I've been talking about violence, writing about violence, and trying to understand violence. As I teach Caribbean thought, the issue of violence will, will pop up. And we talk about human nature as a way to try to understand violence. But beyond that, I read your page just now. I read your page. I went on your Twitter page and you said, thoughts and prayers without action is fake Christianity. We will be judged by our inaction to prevent more bloodshed. And I had to start by asking you that question. What were you getting at by saying that? Thoughts and prayers without action is fake Christianity. We will be judged by our inaction to prevent more bloodshed. Yeah. Well, you know, what a a lot of Republicans uh, tend to do whenever there's a mass shooting um, is right away, you know, whenever there's a tragedy that benefits uh, them, you know, they're quick to exploit it right away. You know, like, you know, you see like this is what the left does, blah, blah. And when something happens uh, that uh, contradicts their narrative or doesn't support uh, their positions right away, it's just like, don't politicize the situation. We're sending our thoughts and prayers. Um, But again, you know, thoughts and prayers without action. again, it's, it's fake Christianity. And they like to right away say thoughts and prayers right away, you know, because it's trying like trying to claim the moral high ground, you know, as though, you know, uh, oh, we're good Christian people. Um, but it's really like, well, you know, being a good Christian person is going to be taking um, action on those words. You know, if you can prevent something and you're choosing to not do anything, then you are complicit in that. And not in the legal sense here in, in this uh, uh, part of life, but, uh, you know, according to the faith that they subscribe to, they are going to be judged. And, you know, it, it's that typical uh, narrow-minded way of thinking of like, you know, oh, I never did anything wrong, uh, therefore I won't be judged harsh, harshly. And it's just like, no, there's also things that you never did. You know, if there's a person starving and you walk right by them and let them starve to death, um, you know, there's a person drowning and you choose to just sit down and watch them drown, you know, you're, you're complicit in those deaths. And so, um, you know, it was my way of trying to communicate to some of my Republican colleagues and uh, and getting through to them and letting them know, you know, you, you will be judged because of this inaction. And, uh, you know, you're there. They may be in safe districts, you know, that they've gerrymandered to where, you know, their job is protected. Um, but one day they will be judged. Yes. Thank, and 
No, and um, I'm happy I asked that question. That, so that speaks about your motivation. People move and act from a motivation, from a deep principle, um, and, uh, and this a good goodwill towards men. And you are seeking to run for president, and you've spoken to us. We've seen several articles, some updates regarding your suit against Trump. And one of the reasons why I wanted you on the show was to get an update on that. But also, it's tax season. And people, many Americans started filing taxes yesterday, I believe. And you are the president and CEO of AI Tax. So I wanted to, and I actually read a statement that you made yesterday, and I retweeted it a minute ago. You said, um, you said, it's, you said that if you'd like to support my politics and get a better tax and get a better tax um, and get a better tax result this year, you can do both. By um, by trying AI tax for free, and you also said you get to see the result before before paying. If you don't like the results, you can walk away as honest and transparent as it gets. So, I want to start with taxes, since many people are thinking about taxes. And um, tell me a little bit about um, what's called um, uh, how people can access this AI tax and how it makes people's lives better. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So AI tax. Um, so. Over the past uh, two years, um, we had been our firm had been secretly working on this behind the scenes. Uh, you know, we jokingly referred to it as the Manhattan Project. You know, which is like we weren't allowed to talk about it outside the office. Um, to date, I've been awarded three patents covering over thirty claims uh, from the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, uh, covering specifically the deployment and use of artificial intelligence in tax planning and tax preparation. Basically, it's like TurboTax on steroids. Um, like in TurboTax, when you get to the dependent section, it just says, "Oh, list all your dependents." But a lot of people have questions, like, "Hey, I took care of my niece for seven months. Um, you know, six of those months she lived in my house, but you know, uh, one of those other months, you know, she was in the other house, but I was still financially supporting her. Like, can I claim my niece or my brother? You know, I'm still paying for all his expenses. Um, can I claim him as a dependent?" Or uh, what about my elderly parents? They don't live with me, but I have to cover all their medical expenses, right? That's a very common uh, theme, you know, in, in uh, um, you know, American society. And so um, all of those, uh, the answer to all of those questions is actually yes, you know, so, um, you know, and, but with AI tax, there's what we call modules where it's simple yes or no questions that it'll ask you. And all you have to do is answer yes, no. And it'll say, okay, did the person live with you? Did you provide the majority of their support? And uh, and then it, there's a video that actually elaborates on that and um, and sort of uh, provides additional guidance to, to the user. And so you could run any person through this scenario and it would tell you correctly whether they can be claimed as a dependent or not. And so uh, it, it's a very, very powerful tool. And, uh, and, and that's just what makes the big difference between AI tax and, uh, and other tax programs. And um, um, what has been um, any, what has been the, the views of most of, the, of your users so far? Uh, the average, um, the average comes out to about 6,500, 6,500. That's, that's on average um, the amount you get more with AI tax than you would with uh, with TurboTax or any other software. Um, it, it can vary wildly. You know, with some people, it uh, the result ends up being um, you know fifteen hundred dollar difference, not a huge amount. With other people, it ends up being a fifty thousand dollar difference. Um, it, it just really depends on your your income range and and uh, you know various things that you qualify or don't qualify for. You know, I understand that the. Uh... 
Well, I understand that the federal government will be giving out um, less tax returns this year. The IRS is saying that people will be getting less on their tax returns this year. And um, are you and that because of the federal the federal government spending on COVID. So, um, what do you think that some um, AI, some platform tax pl um, software or platform will be able to generate a little bit more, um, and will be able to circumvent and go around what we're hearing that people will be getting less taxes this year. Um. It, it depends. If, if it's a standard W-2 situation, which is the vast majority of the American public, then then yes, you're, you're likely going to get um, a little bit of a smaller refund. Um, but if you had any sort of for-profit activity on the side, that's what really makes the difference. Um, you know, so whether that's like you, like with a podcast or something like that, is the, the idea behind it is, um, do you have an activity on the side, aside from, you know, W-2 income, that uh, that is income generating that you intend to make a profit and then all the expenses associated with that um, can then be used to offset um, ordinary income uh, from the W-2. So uh, with creative, and this is the time where, and, and we experienced this also after the 2008 market meltdown, um, you know, back then is companies were trying to find a way to increase their revenue, their, their bottom line but they were only looking to traditional ways, right? Like uh, cutting expenses or going into new profitable areas. Uh, during a recession, there's not new profitable areas really to tap into. So it was really about cutting expenses. And so that's why you see all these companies cutting jobs, right? Like, you know, Apple just cut like 13,000 jobs or something. Um, but what really sophisticated companies and taxpayers can do is cut your tax rate. That's how you actually end up in increasing your your uh, effective net after tax income. So um, so yeah, I think the smart ones are, are going to give AI tax a shot. And also, worst case scenario is you use AI tax; it doesn't produce a better result, and the fee is zero. So you know that's and and when you look at it that way, if you pay zero to prepare your taxes, and you would have otherwise paid fifty or hundred dollars or more, you still are saving. So no matter what, uh, you know, a, a user will have a net. Uh, positive result using AI tax. And some people um, like myself, um, who have my own business and do several different things. I actually filed with them. So I've been using other software and I had to pay in order to get peace of mind. And so you are saying that AI tax provides peace of mind without having to, without you having to pay that extra amount of money to get that. Uh, correct, yeah, sorry. My, my camera went out. I was trying to figure out what was going on there for a second. <laughs> Correct. Right now. And okay, now moving away from taxes, now in, in, um, back to politics. And we want to talk, we want to get an update as to what's going on with you. I know you did, there has been quite a few um, news stories concerning your suit against um, Trump and the FEC. Um, and we want to hear from you what's going on, what's the latest concerning your filing against Trump and the FEC. Yes. So um, so the first case against the FEC, uh, the judge ended up ruling in December that I didn't have federal judicial standing to, uh, to bring the case. So what he determined there was that I did have an injury. It was a political competitive injury, but that okay. the FEC was not the one that uh, that caused that injury, that it was the, uh, the candidate, Donald Trump, that committed that injury or was you know committing that injury ongoing injury and so it was the court basically saying you're suing the wrong person you're not supposed to be suing the fec you're supposed to be suing donald trump 
My theory hinged on uh, statutory provision, 52 USC 30101, I think it's sub nine, um, but it was the definition of a candidate. And my argument was that uh, the statutory definition of a candidate by implication suggested uh, a person that is eligible. Now, this is not a wild theory because the FEC was posed with this question back in 2015. And in that case, they, and it was a legal advisory opinion, they said that um, although they understood the reasonableness of interpreting the statute that way, that they felt the legislative intent behind the Federal Election Campaign Act was simply to regulate campaign finances and empower the FEC to do that, not to get into the world of becoming the arbiter of eligibility uh, with regard to a candidacy. And so they self-determined that they did not have that authority. The court also looked at the congressional history uh, and legislative intent behind FICA and determined also that they didn't have that authority. My position though, um, I so I disagreed with the judge and I filed a notice of appeal to the United States Court of Appeals for the DC Circuit. And I basically am going to now posit that question before the DC Court of Appeals, which is technically, Yes, you can interpret the statute that way. If you if you subscribe to conservative judicial philosophy like Scalia, then you would agree that it is emphatically the province of the judiciary to say what the law is, and you would disregard legislative intent, which right now the D.C. Circuit skews conservative. Um, so they would have to be hypocritical and go against their own judicial philosophy to rule against me. But of course, if you're you're liberal skewed in uh, judicial philosophy and and liberal and conservative in, in the judicial realm is it's is a uh, somewhat analogous, but in some other ways very different than liberal and conservative in the legislative context, like with regard to congressmen and senators. Um, but if you skew more liberal, uh, though the liberal judicial philosophy tends to favor um, agency interpretations. So in this case, they would give a lot more deference to the FEC's interpretation of, of their own powers. And so uh, we'll see, we'll see how it goes. Um, it, it, I mean, ultimately it, they could rule against me. Um, I could see a judge going either way on this. It, it, it doesn't help that legislative intent is not on our side, but while that was pending and that, that notice of appeal was filed right before Christmas um, on January 6th, and that was very intentionally, um, I flew to Palm Beach and I filed a direct lawsuit against Donald Trump. So now there's an active case, John Anthony Castro versus Donald John Trump. And uh, uh, actually funny, right now, we literally just this morning uh, served Donald Trump at Mar-a-Lago. So uh, he was served this morning with the lawsuit. Um, the yeah. judge who was initially assigned to the case was Judge Eileen Cannon, the same judge that tried to illegally shut down the DOJ investigation and was overturned by uh, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit. So um, we were initially going to file a motion to recuse, uh, citing her, her obvious bias, and everybody in the media uh, criticized her for that decision. But we decided to leave her on the case. Um, I view it best because the first thing I did is after I filed the lawsuit, within three days, she dismissed the complaint. And she said that it violated the shotgun pleading rule, which just there's about seven circuits that have cited to that. But um, the 11th Circuit has the most robust case law. They, they almost take a form over substance approach, which is a little bit, not a little bit. I think it's violative of, of procedural due process, but I digress on that. We amended the complaint. She didn't bring it up again. 
Um, so it looks like we're good to go. But I prefer to leave Judge Eileen Cannon on the case because it's basically this is going to end up before the Supreme Court anyways. So I prefer to see their best, most biased argument up front rather than getting a softball judge that agrees with us, you know, uh, approves everything. And then we don't really face any resistance until we get to the Supreme Court. Um, so I'd rather deal with that now. But uh, even though the 11th Circuit is is pretty conservative, but uh, but more traditional old school establishment. But uh, we'll see. We'll see how it goes. I, I, it's going to be very interesting. We have these two sister cases. Um, and just I, I definitely want to make this one one public statement with regard to these cases so that people don't get disillusioned. These cases are knowingly premature. Uh, I was. Uh, consulting with numerous constitutional law professors, constitutional law scholars, attorneys, and they all said, John, you need to sue Trump when both you and him are registered and on the ballot approved, right? Like stamped by the by the uh, New Hampshire Secretary of State as coming, like your name is going to be on the ballot uh, for the presidency, uh, for the for the primary. They said, once that happens, there's no question that you have standing, there's no question there's an injury, and there's no question a court can review that. Um, you won't have any of these procedural hurdles. Right now, they're going to they're gonna attack it for ripeness. They're going to attack it for standing. They're going to attack it on all these procedural defects um, that have never been tested before the federal judiciary. So I said, you know what? Rather than all of us just sitting around talking and twiddling our thumbs for the next 10 months while we wait for New Hampshire to open up the filing process so I can get registered, I said, let me test these new theories. Let me test the wild theory that 52 USC 30101 sub 9 uh, implies eligibility. And let's put that before the DC circuit. If they rule against us, awesome. At least now it's there's no more question. There's no more debate about whether you can or can't. Um, and then the one about Trump right now, you know, they said like, no, they're, they're probably going to attack it for lack of ripeness um, because you're a candidate for FICA purposes, but not necessarily a candidate yet on the ballot. There's a lot of eligibility requirements. You know, even when you have millions of dollars like Kanye West, you 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 might not end up on the ballot, you know, for all these like procedural hurdles. And so, uh, and I said, okay, well, if they shoot it down based on ripeness, then, then great. But again, at least we aren't talking and we're taking action. And that's what I'm a big believer in. I don't like sitting around talking. I prefer taking action. And, um, you know, if there's 10 people in the room and two say, I think it'll work and eight say, no, I'm going to give it a shot because there's two highly educated people that think it's possible. Let's get a ruling from the federal judge. And if the judge says no, at least now there won't be a two eight split anymore. It's just everybody's going to know, OK, you can't do that anymore. This is powerful. I think I'm get. I think I understand. I understand your approach to all of this now. It's premature yet. You know, it's, it provides a learning opportunity because every time you you meet a hurdle, you learn something, and you go back to the drawing board and, and present a stronger case. And so, they, they, I mean, the, so in terms of the DC circuit, so that case has, is no longer on the table. It's, you, you know, it's, been, it's out of the door. It's through the window. It's, it's, on, it's on the table. So um, we, we haven't got the briefing schedule yet, which is kind of odd. Um, but, uh, but we submitted the, the notice of appeal. Um, we, we boiled down the question that the court has to answer. Um, and had to do with the traceability of the injury and the ability of the FEC to make an eligibility determination. And so we should be getting that any day now. The DC Circuit should be sending us a brief briefing schedule. They, they would send that to us. And then by this certain date, 
we have to submit our appellate brief and then the government has to submit their reply and then we get you know the reply to the reply and then after that it'll be scheduled for uh, an official hearing that probably won't be till maybe march or or may um somewhere around there okay. but at least we'll have that that decision right well before the november time frame when everybody said that for sure is when you would have both standing ripeness and meet all the criteria to to you know expedite this through the courts so we'll have that ruling and then the case right now personally against trump um you know like i said I, i'm guessing most likely his attorneys are going to motion to dismiss based on ripeness um the thing is is that the uh declaratory relief act uh by implication in many cases it permits a ca uh, a court to make a determination before an issue is fully ripe and yes. especially in a situation like this because you're simply asking for a declaration of of everybody's rights and so mm -hmm. um it, it's going to be interesting uh, again these are these are untested legal theories un untested legal routes that nobody's ever tested and a lot of attorneys um are too cowardice to even try it right because they don't want their names associated with a failed attempt uh me as an entrepreneur um you know and every entrepreneur knows this uh, failure is our best friend uh failures are yes. best friend because every time you fail you learn something from it you continue to yes. develop in your sword come back and it's yeah. that relentlessness that differentiates a successful entrepreneur from a failed entrepreneur. The only difference between a successful entrepreneur and a failed entrepreneur is the refusal to give up. And that's what relentlessness means. That's what it implies. Um, I'm not afraid of failure. So I'm going to give it my best shot, make my best legal argument. And uh, and like I said, I'm being intellectually honest about the weaknesses in, in each case and, and how I think they might turn. But again, at least it's official. It's on the books. Right for now, everybody cited that that 2015 FEC advisory opinion to say that oh yeah, the FEC self determined they don't have the uh, uh, legal standing to make an eligibility decision. Now they don't have to do that anymore. They can cite Castro v. FEC forever. They, it's that's going to be supplanted now as the citation for that. And once the DC Circuit rules on this, even if they rule against me, it's going to forever be cited as Castro v. FEC, DC Circuit 2023 as the case that the FEC doesn't have the power to make an eligibility determination. And so again, you know, even if I were to kind of like lose with the objective, I win on the overall, you know, substance, which is that there, I've added clarity to the law. There's that that's no longer a question. That's powerful. Yes. That's, thank you. Oh, this is, and you just, you said, I'm not afraid of failure. The, ref, the refusal, the refusal to give up. That relentlessness is what separates a successful and an unsuccessful entrepreneur. Quite a powerful statement. That's what keeps you going. Oh yeah. yeah. And um, do you, and um, what and in terms of what in terms of your campaigning and your particular your campaigning, what's going, what's the latest with that? What's going on in terms of your campaign? What's the next steps for you in terms yeah. of you running? Because I know you said part of this establishing standing, so you will definitely be. Um, for sure, you will establish standing. You'll be, you'll be, you'll be a nominee. Exactly, exactly. So uh, right now, the the primary focus is is uh, growing the firm, getting through tax season very successfully, generating a lot of revenue as always. Um, the revenue that's generated um, and uh, you know the existing amount of funds and, and wealth I already have is going to be used to um, uh, acquire uh, a property in New Hampshire. 
And so we're looking at certain uh, real estate properties in New Hampshire. The reason for that is what I intend to do is purchase a property in New Hampshire, preferably like a six bedroom home. And what I'm gonna do with that is that's gonna effectively serve as campaign headquarters. And so I'm gonna head up there most likely in May, probably close in June, and then start hiring in July and probably start knocking on doors in August. And the idea behind that is August, uh, September, October, I'm gonna be knocking on doors uh, in New Hampshire. And, and by the way, this is a, the, exactly what every candidate, including Obama did. Um, and the reason why everybody, the reason why New Hampshire and, and Iowa are always the first primaries in the whole country is because the state is so small. New Hampshire is like the size of the, the Dallas-Fort Worth area where I live. I've campaigned here, so I already know what it's like knocking on that many doors, uh, the amount of calf muscle that you develop <laughs> constantly walking everywhere, um, yeah. the amount of, of uh, uh, the toll that it takes on your health. I, I lost like probably like eight pounds when I was just running a, a three month, two and a half month campaign. Um, yeah. And it's because you have to like literally schedule in time to eat, and make sure you're ha you know, have the proper calorie intake. It's intense. You know, most people don't know this, but it is very intense campaigning for office. Um, but that's what I plan to do uh, for all of, uh, like I said, August, September, October, knocking on doors, introducing myself, and uh, and and that can make the world of difference. You know, how I pull out of New Hampshire is going to give us a bellwether of how uh, I'll perform during the rest of the campaign, but. Here's the thing that, oh, and then the, the key states that I'm going to get on the ballot on. I'm not trying to get on the ballot on all 50 states, although that would ultimately be the goal if we had the funding. But um, the only states we need to get with is Pennsylvania, Arizona, Wisconsin, and Georgia. Um, those are the key battleground states. And if I can get Trump kicked off of just one of those states, uh, his path to 270 becomes almost impossible. So... Uh, that's the goal is to have standing in those states bring those state uh, uh, court actions and um, and yeah that's that's pretty much how it's gonna go now I'll tell you this as well this is really important because um, I'm, I'm definitely trying to telegraph this some people have said oh you don't want to telegraph your intent to the other side no I do um, even if I were to poll at five percent let's just say five percent in every state you know I end up only getting five percent of the vote people would laugh yes. right you know, like, oh, that's a, a abysmal performance. Yes, in the primary. But after the Republican National Convention, and when you go to the general election, you realize that 5% really matters because Wisconsin turned on 1.2%. Arizona turned on 0.9%. Georgia turned on 1.5%. Uh, all of these states, Wisconsin, I Aaron, you get the point. Oh, sorry, Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania, I think, was about 1.6, 1.7. So all of these states turned on less than 2%. So if I control 5% of the Republican base, you can't carry a swing state without my block. So that is where, uh, at the Republican National Convention, uh, I would have a lot of bargaining power as far as the direction of the party, and who the ultimate uh, uh, nominee is going to be. And I always, of course, retain the nuclear option of walking out of the Republican National Convention and taking my block of voters and endorsing the candidate on the Democratic side.
And so yes. this happened. It's not unheard of. It happened in 1984. They were called the Reagan Democrats. They left the Democratic National Convention and they went over to the Republican National Convention and they publicly endorsed Ronald Reagan. Uh, some people said it was a political stunt. Doesn't matter. It had the impact. He ended up sweeping the entire country. So, yes. um, strategy. You know, it, whether whether they like it or not, uh, my campaign and what we plan to do uh, it is going to have a tremendous impact on the uh, overall uh, outcome of the 2024 election. John Anthony Castro is speaking with us, giving us an update and as it relates to the suit. And um, just so you know, breaking news this morning, this morning, you filed a suit against directly against Donald Trump, not against the FEC, but against Donald Trump um, in the and in the in Florida Circuit Courts in the Florida so, Circuit. So, uh, so, yeah, we no, we filed the lawsuit on on January 6th and uh, only today we were finally able to serve him at Mar-a-Lago because Secret Service had been impeding our ability to to serve him. Uh, with service of process, but we sued him in the United States District Court for the Southern District of Florida's Palm Beach Division, which is only about 15 minutes from Mar-a-Lago. Okay, great. So that's breaking news coming in. Thank you so much. And um, and let us know what's going on with the Republican Party. You have a new speaker, you guys dominate the House, but it, it took 15 rounds round of votes to finally declare um, Kevin McCarthy, who everyone thought that he was the heir apparent. Um, what what does that suggest? What does that speak to, um, the, to, to, to the Republican Party and what's going on in terms of the leadership and who is who, who controls the party and where is Donald Trump in all of this? Yeah, so I mean, Donald Trump didn't really have any influence on, on any of that. You know, this block primarily led by Matt Gates and uh, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene and, you know, other fanatical uh, right-wing zealots um, that are, you know, uh, definitely outliers. Um, it, it was a smart move, you know? I mean, they're, they're politicians, right? And so they they read the rules. They, they understood how to gain leverage over Kevin McCarthy. So although he's the speaker, uh, you know, it's speaker in name only. Uh, he caved in and, and just gave them way too much. And... Um, and yeah, it just continues to to show that you know this QAnon element of the uh, uh, I would just say the the QAnon caucus of the Republican Party, um, you know, has a, a lot of a lot of pull within the party, and slowly they're gravitating away from traditional conservatism, um, you know, which calls for small, limited government. You don't want a government very powerful, um, and they are instead advocating for more larger federal government and expansion of federal governmental powers. And uh, it's just it's just bizarre because it, once you grab everything about conservatism except small limited government, and then you start getting overly obsessed with people's individual private lives, um, that's when you start descending into fascism. And uh, that's really what this element within the Republican Party is. They they probably don't realize it, but it's a it's a new form of fascism. And so that's why you know people refer to it sometimes as neo fascism. Um, so yeah, it's it's definitely. Uh, uh, an interesting time, but uh, I would say it also exposed the all-out practical civil war going on within the Republican Party um, and the fight, you know, to uh, to determine its its uh, future tra trajectory. So I guess it's do, so would you consider this a, a very is a very good time, a very good moment, something that is needed within the Republican Party, the chaos or that's happening in terms of, they've tried to find themselves more than 21st yeah. century. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's not much of a Republican Party platform right now. Right now, it's just, uh, you know, the Republicans have, have realized that that what gets votes is not nerdy ideas and, and you know, formal platforms, but boogeymen, you know, uh, the school boards, you know, the, the books, the um, uh, LGBTQ issues, uh, drag queens, uh, yeah, anything to to not have to explain to their constituents what their actual policy objectives are, because right now uh, the Republican Party is very intellectually bankrupt um, and, and doesn't really have a clear cut agenda on on actual concrete policies that are going to improve the daily lives of their voters. And also they're in a very awkward position because Donald Trump brought with, into the Republican Party a lot of working class um, uh, voters. And so they know that they can't directly address working class issues without upsetting a lot of their, um, you know, trade alliances. And so that's why they they're sticking to the boogeyman issues <laughs> uh, while secretly pushing an agenda that uh, is actually contrary to the interests of the working class and, and middle class in America. Wow, wow. And um, I, I want I wanted to get your opinion on. Um, What's going with um, on immigration briefly? I, um, what's going on the border? What's going on on the border? And President Biden decided. Um, I think there is some kind of arrangement with countries of NAFTA. I think the, his decision is to have thirty thousand people, thirty thousand immigrants, about thirty thousand uh, immigrants um, on humanitarian grounds to um, to come into the U.S. While he will be more aggressive in terms of expelling people who are cross the border illegally. However, I understand that there's some kind of challenge to this. Do you, do you know, are you familiar with this? I mean, yeah, it, it, it all comes down to, <laughs> the, the thing is that the Supreme Court is, uh, is again, just uh, shooting itself in the foot repeatedly. You know, during um, democratic administrations, they want to limit the power of the executive branch. But then during times of Republican administrations, they want to, you know, give them a lot more leeway. And then you have all these they have, you have all these Supreme Court decisions contradicting each other, right? Like the executive branch can do this. No, they can't. And I mean, if you just plain reading of the statute, basically says the executive branch can do whatever it wants, right? They have executive they have what's called prosecutorial discretion. They can choose to admit people, not admit people. Um, there, there's a wide range of power that has always traditionally been reserved to the executive branch, but. Um, uh, you know, they're, they're just really contradicting themselves. And also the, the thing that's always upset at me about immigration is um, it's like de it's like debating and trying to resolve your runny nose. You know, it's just like you can do whatever you want, you know, and, and stuff paper in there. You know, you're not solving the issue. W what's the actual issue? You know, do you have a cold? Do you have a flu? You know, do you need to take a shot? Like, so in other words, we need to be looking at what are our policies um, in South America? How, why are people leaving these countries in droves? And so people then say, like, oh, well, you know, in places like El Salvador, it's the violence. Okay, well, then the, the solution is simple. We need to send in uh, assistance, you know, whether involving U.S. Marines as well. But then the conservatives are like, well, no, because we're non-interventionists and we don't want to do that. So then it's just like, okay, well, I mean, you know, do you have any actual logical long-term solutions other than constantly just dealing with the symptom? The symptom is people showing up to the border, um, you know, between the United States and Mexico, and not all coming from Mexico, of course, coming from all of South America and even sometimes from Africa. It's just like, why are they coming? You know, what what are we not doing in their home countries to promote stability, peace, economic justice, so that they have 
um, a path to a decent life. And when that's when you don't provide that, uh, when you don't provide basic stability, right? Like I don't want to walk down the street and not get murdered. When you can't provide basic stability, when you can't provide economic justice so that they can actually you know, generationally, like we do here in the US, you know, my, my great grandfather was poor, and then my father took us to the working class. And then, you know, uh, you know, I took our family to the upper middle class, and and so on and so forth. Um, you know, when you don't provide those economic ladders, people are not going to want to participate in that system. And so they're going to leave that country and go to the beacon of, of light and, and liberty in the world, which is the United States. And so this is the land of opportunity, the American dream. And can you blame them? Of course not. You know, they're, they're just trying to seek what's what's best for them. We got lucky, right? I mean, we we won the genetic lottery and we happened to just be born in this country. Um, they didn't. You could have very well been born, you know, in El Salvador. And you, using all your intellect, would be finding out a way, how do I get out of here? Because there's no way I can have a decent life in this in this country. And we need to start looking into that interventionist policies. Um and that's what I'm in favor of, uh, you know, getting a lot more involved, uh, including the provision of, of uh, police and military assistance. And um, it's quite interesting that you said that I wrote the book, Neoliberalism. I have to involve my book, Neoliberalism, Globalization, Economic Quality, Public and Resistance, looking at people of the global self and how globalization and has affected these countries, um, developing countries. We usually call them third world countries, and we talk about intervention interventionist policies and in retrospect there was the imf structural adjustment policies to help to um develop these countries and but the but the problem is the economic assistance that was provided to many of these countries wasn't the kind of assistance that they needed so of course, i believe in interventionist policies but the policies also have to be one that is targeted and where these countries have a say in the direction of, 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 but then there is corruption in some of these countries, which I'm talking about corruption today on Friday in my class. We have to also deal with corruption in these countries. The community of these countries have been given billions of dollars, but you don't see the investment, you know? So there's, there's so, so much happening that interventionist policies have to also include some kind of, some kind of engagement that ensure that the monies are being spent in an effective way, but in a way where they have some kind of autonomy which speaks to development. But then you want the, you don't want these countries to be competitive. You still maybe people want this instability. Instability helps. <laughs> but anyway, do that philosophical arguments that we can get into. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's 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 complex, right? I mean, like it's it's a multifaceted issue, and that's that's what I like about um, you know. A lot of people were unhappy with the results of, of the 2022 election. I was actually really happy. I love the idea of a split legislature. I love the yes. idea of Democrats in control of the Senate, Republicans barely by a thread in charge of the House. Um, and, and the reason for that is I want both sides to talk to each other, right? Like when yes. one side completely dominates, that's where you it, it starts creating a lot of instability. You know, and uh, and even during the speaker fight, you had that rare scenario where you saw Paul uh, Gosar talking with uh, Alexander Ocasio-Ortez, you know, right? Like arch enemies, you know, uh, on the political spectrum. And yet there they were talking, you know. And so I, that actually made me smile because I was like, good, because at the end of the day, what a lot of people don't know about me is I am a moderate. I if I had to try to put a title on it, I'm an equilibrianist. 
Um, yeah. I, I want a balance. You know, I want both sides to talk to each other again. I want this, you know, toxic, uh, all Republicans are Nazis. You know, all Democrats are are communists. Um, it, it's it's ridiculous. You know, I, I truly yeah. believe that everybody is is motivated out of love for this country. And, you know, we we shouldn't we shouldn't get into that that really ugly, nasty politics of like, you know, the other side or a bunch of Satan worshiping pedophiles and, you know, the, the QNN wing. Right. And, and, uh, it's, it's obviously, in, you know, powerful. Thank you. And we, and we will end with this moment. You are, you are in Dallas. Are you not? Yes. <laughs> and, <laughs> and you know, you know, David, let's talk about Dallas Cowboys. I play, I play fantasy football. I, I watch football a lot. What's the mood like? It was, <laughs> what's the mood? And I'm in Philadelphia. I'm a fan of Philadelphia. We're looking forward to the game. We're looking forward to the 49ers. What's the mood like in, um, in that, in your neck of the woods? Knowing what's going, what happened with that. Uh, yeah, everybody's, everybody, obviously, you know, uh, what is it? What are they? What's the old saying? Um, Victory has a, a thousand sons, but uh, defeat is an orphan. Um, so, I mean, right away, you know, everybody started pointing fingers. You know, it's like, oh, well, Dak sucks. And, you know, he kept on getting intercepted. And uh, it's just kind of like, well, no, I mean, like he, he threw, that was a good throw. It was just, you know, he had a really good uh, uh, cornerback. Um, but the kicker, I mean, come on, Mayher, he gets paid $965,000 a year to miss field goals. Um, I mean, you could put any, but you could put my grandmother, you know, on the field to do that and <laughs> pay her half that amount. Uh, in one game, he missed more field goals than any kicker uh, since 1932. Uh, he missed four oh. field in one game. So, I mean, it's, I, I think that that's pretty clear, you know, where, where blame lies. And, um, and, and I, I really think Jerry Jones knows that also. And during the pregame warm up to San Francisco, uh, uh, Mayer had already missed three kicks, and so Jerry Jones literally went all the way down to the field, walked out of the field, put his hands on you know Mayer's shoulder, and was like, "Hey, you okay?" You know, <laughs> kind of like when when the owner does that, that's that's his way of saying you need to do good today or you're fired. <laughs> uh, and I really do think that um, you know to to satisfy Cowboys fans, uh, I think Jerry Jones should replace Mayer as the kicker. I mean. For God's sakes, you can't get anything worse than somebody that that's going to break a, a record since 1932 for sucking that bad on the field as a, as a kicker. It's like you got one job and you can't do that right. Um, so, yeah, that being said, I, I think it's now out of the box that I'm a Cowboys fan. And <laughs> yeah, we, we were pretty we were all pretty sour over here. You think they should replace that Prescott? No, 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 no. I think I think Dak is awesome. Um, I, I just think we were, we just got outplayed, you know, fair and square by, uh, by the 49ers. They, they have a great team. They did a great job. Um, you know, it's nothing on, on their side. Um, but I think if, you know, you had to create a list of people to blame, the only one I can honestly put on that list is mayor. So <laughs> if it was me and if it was my team and my billions on the line, like Jerry Jones, I, I, I would probably start, you know, uh, trying out looking at the stats of, college football kickers and uh, giving somebody fresh a, a shot. Thank you. Well, you know what? I've been listening to commentators. I've, I, I didn't, and, and um, I, I watched Stephen A. Smith. I didn't hear him. Men- I didn't hear them mentioning, um, no, Michael Irvin mentioning um, the, the kicker. Uh, probably, I probably missed some of that, but yeah, I, I, but I knew, I, I think I'm aware that he did miss quite a few, but, um, but yeah. let's see what's going to happen. And we hope that develop chemistry. 
I don't think they should change the dynamic of the team. I think sometimes when they do that, it affects the chemistry of the team, and chemistry is also important, and they can just learn some of these, because I think they had a very good team. I think I think Cowboys had a very good team. Probably they, they, they were missing only OBJ, probably. I'm just messing. <laughs> Omel Beckham. I'm just messing around. But thank you so much. Thank you. This was quite an amazing time, and I'm looking forward to having you back again. And I'm, I'm wishing you all the best any last words um no no uh, uh next time uh, we're able to chat I'll, I'll give you guys a more substantive update uh, you know hopefully uh like i said hopefully we can uh we can get a victory on this because that would be amazing and you're going to be joining me on uh, joining my class on one of these fridays i think sometime in March, late march talking about american politics yeah, yeah absolutely. looking forward to it i look forward to yeah, it. but i want to thank you so much and we and I appreciate you, the Neoliberal Round podcast. We appreciate you and your contributions to the show. And I'm wishing you all the best in your endeavors. Take care. And just yeah. so you know, guys, you can visit um, John Castro by going to www.johncastro.com. Am I right? Yes, correct. Just go to the real John Castro. Yeah.